everybody. Uh, before we get going this morning, um, if you're unaware, we have a lending library, a little cart over in the corner that's got some titles that we think are helpful. We just got a new book. It's called What If Jesus Was Serious by Sky Jatani, and it is a little, it's a devotional. It's like two pages, two-page chapters all about the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the author's premise is that maybe there's this big section of Scripture of Jesus' teachings that we don't take seriously enough. It's a really great, easy entry into the Sermon on the Mount. There's lots of pictures, um, and there's a few copies in the Lending Library. Go ahead and borrow one if you'd like. Um, highly recommend So this morning, we are going to be finishing up Matthew chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can use one of the Bibles in front of you in the pew. In that Bible, we'll be in page 872. As we've been kind of getting towards this midpoint in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been uh, traveling around Galilee, traveling around the different areas of Israel, teaching and preaching. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. And you remember a few weeks ago, he went way up north uh, outside of Israel. And we talked about how he is the son of God. And he went up on this mountain and he was transfigured before the disciples to show that he is who he said he was. And they came down the mountain and now they're headed south. For the rest of the book, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. We read in verse 22, as they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus told them the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. So Jesus is reminding his disciples of the plan. He's going to do this three times. He's done it once already. This is the second time. And one more time on their way to Jerusalem. And he's going to very clearly say, hey, this is what's going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. But I'm going to be raised up on the third day. He's going to Jerusalem. What's what's in Jerusalem? Anybody? Shout it out. What's in Jerusalem? The temple. Good job, Karis. (laughs) The temple's in Jerusalem. The temple is the center of Jewish life, religious life, social life, political life. He's heading to the temple. That's where the leaders live. That's where these men that are going to kill him oversee the government. He's going straight into that conflict. And he tells his disciples, this is what's going to happen. And they are deeply distressed, Matthew writes. Even though Jesus says, I'm going to be raised from the dead, it's almost like it doesn't register. It's still like, no, you're the Messiah. You're the conquering king. You're the one that's going to kick out Rome and set up the kingdom of God on earth. How can you die? How can you be betrayed? This is terrible. Because, see, the way that Jesus is walking, it just rubs against our natural inclinations. We have a way that we think life is supposed to go, and Jesus says, no, actually, the better way is this way. And we're like, I'm not so sure about that, Jesus. That doesn't sound better to me. 
So then we're going to pick up this little story for the rest of this section. And it's, it's a, I, I like it a lot. It's one of my favorites, I think. But do you know the phrase, pick your battles wisely? Choose your battles wisely? Or maybe, what, what's the hill that you're going to die on? My wife and I have, we'll, we'll be married for 18 years this August. And last month, during quarantine, she said, you know what really bothers me? When you shave, you don't clean up all the little shaving bits out of the sink. That really bothers me. See, it took her 17 and a half years to let me know that because there were so many other larger battles to fight. And it was finally, okay, we've dealt with all the other stuff. Here's something that really bothers me. The story today is about choosing your battles wisely. They're coming down from the mountain, going through Galilee. They end up in Capernaum. Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. It's where Peter lives. Jesus typically stays at Peter's house when they're in Capernaum. And this story takes place there. When they came to Capernaum, in verse 24, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? So they're basically door-to-door tax men. They show up at Peter's house, and they say, hey, you live here, your teacher lives here, it's tax time. The temple tax is, some of your Bibles might say the two drachma tax, that's a unit of currency that we are unfamiliar with. This would have been an annual tax that every male in the country would pay in order to keep up the temple. Uh, pay for the janitors, pay for new paint and wallpaper, pay for uh, guards' salaries, all of the things that were required to keep the temple going. And it would have been about $150 in today's money. But this isn't just a story about paying your taxes. Matthew is crafting this in such a way that we're supposed to see the conflict here. Hey, guys, I'm going down to Jerusalem where the temple is and the leadership of the temple. They are going to kill me because of what I stand for. And the very next verse is, hey, does Jesus pay the temple tax? The temple is broken. It's corrupt. Its leadership are leading the people astray, and, it's, and they're wicked in the way they practice their faith. And so this question is, is Jesus a good patriotic citizen? Is he going to pay his taxes? And Matthew wants us to feel the tension of like, well, we know that he's standing in opposition against this corrupt system. So is he going to pay this tax? And I love Peter's response in verse 25. Yes? We we really don't know how he said that. Maybe he says, yes, absolutely, because I've seen Jesus every other year pay it. Maybe he's like, what do I need to say to get out of this awkward conversation right now? We don't really know. But he says, yes. And then he goes inside. And Jesus, either because he overheard the conversation or because he's been given supernatural insight into the conversation, says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, Peter said. And then the sons are free, Jesus told him. This is a great example of how 
the Bible is a foreign document to 21st century readers. Jesus' little illustration here doesn't make any sense in our context. You know, when President Trump raises taxes, do Don Jr. and Eric and Tiffany and Ivanka, do they pay? Well, yeah, this is America. Everybody pays their taxes, right? But not so in Jesus' day. If a king was going to levy taxes against a people, he wasn't going to charge his own family the taxes. That would be foolish. And so Jesus is making a pretty big statement right now. He wants us to think, and this is, this is oftentimes how Jesus teaches. He doesn't lay it all out for us. He makes us think. If a king levies a tax, does he make his children pay the tax? And Peter says, no. Who is the king of the temple? Who's the king of the temple? Yeah, God. God, is that the right answer? <laughs> yeah, Yahweh, God, he's the king of the temple, right? So who is Jesus? The son of God, right? Jesus, two times in Matthew, we just got off the mountain a, a, a few weeks ago, and, and Jesus was on the mountain being transfigured and shining, and, and the father said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. All the way back in chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, Matthew writes. And a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is making a pretty profound statement here. Yahweh, my father, he is the king of the temple and I am his son I don't have to pay this tax. I am not under this tax. And then by extension, Peter, as my disciple, you are not under this tax either. I am bringing about the kingdom of God and you are a citizen of it and you do not belong to this system. Jesus says, I am the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming king. And I'm bringing the kingdom of God in a way that is going to collide with this worldly system and destroy it. I don't owe the temple any money. And then if that's the end of the story, what lesson do we learn from that? In one sense, it's a really positive lesson. I want to read Ephesians to you, chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Ephesians 1 just goes on and on and on about how blessed we are in Christ, how we are the people of God. We are adopted as sons and daughters, citizens of the kingdom. Our big brother Jesus is the high king that rules and reigns over all of time and space. That's a pretty uplifting feeling, right? This is who you are, Christian. This is your status in the kingdom of God. 
You are not a servant. You are not a subject. You are a son. You are a daughter. But this isn't where the story ends. The sons are free, Jesus told him. Verse 27. But, so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. And the question I want to ask is, when is Jesus concerned about offending people? If you flip over just a a couple chapters to chapter 15, uh, in in verse 3, Jesus is talking to the the religious leaders, and he says, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father and mother must be put to death. But you say, whoever tells his mother or father whatever benefit you may have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. He does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your traditions. Hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Summoning the crowd, he told them, listen and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came up and told him, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He replied, every plant that my heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. doesn't really seem like Jesus cares too much about offending people. He speaks this powerful truth about how these leaders are ripping off the people, deceiving the people, binding them down with rules and regulations that they can't keep, twisting God's law for their own personal gain. And he doesn't mince words. And yet, in this story, in this instance, he's concerned about offending people. I think one way to look at this is Whenever Jesus stands up, he stands up for others. He's always standing up for the oppressed, for the mistreated, for the poor, for the needy, for the child. You very rarely, if ever, see him standing up for himself. When injustice is being done against others, Jesus gets riled up about it. But in this instance, who is Jesus concerned about offending? Some random temple tax collectors. Like just some guys that are going door to door, doing their job, trying to collect the tax money. Have you ever been drawn into somebody else's crusade and you were totally thrown off guard? I remember a couple years ago I was getting my tires changed and I was on my cell phone and I was working and this guy came up to me and was all like, you kids and your cell phones, you got your face in there and what's wrong with you and nobody knows how to have a conversation anymore. And I was like, whoa, dude, I'm just trying to get my tires fixed and I'm doing a little work. And, and he just kept coming at me about how terrible this generation was and cell phones and text messaging. And after a while, I found out that his wife had a smartphone and she was pretty addicted to it and he had a whole lot of other deep things going on in there. But it totally caught me off guard because I was unaware of this man's crusade until that moment. 
Imagine these tax collectors. No, we're not paying your taxes because this is the Messiah, the king of the Jews, and he's going to come and he's going to overthrow Rome and he's going to destroy this place and the kingdom of God is coming. And these guys are like, I don't know, man. I just wanted this coin. I'm just going door to door asking for the temple tax. These guys aren't part of this fight. They don't know what's going on. So Jesus says, we don't want to offend these guys. We're just going to pay this tax. Don't worry about it. But then notice, Jesus doesn't have 150 bucks. He doesn't have this money. He says, Peter, go out, go fishing, find a fish, catch a fish. In the fish, there will be a coin. Uh, The word, um, I think Sarah read it, it's a shekel. It would have been worth four drachmas, so double the tax money enough for Jesus and Peter, the two men in the household. Go pay the tax. So what do, we, what do we do with this story? Like, I mean, maybe we could just be like, well, you should pay your taxes. <laughs> That's not really the point of the story, though. <laughs> Jesus calls us to be people that walk in wisdom, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, he says. And it's, it's easy for us to want a list of, of hard and fast black and white rules for how to live your life. When you're in this situation, you do this. When you're in this situation, you do that. But Jesus rarely teaches us that way. He gives us these big ideas to wrestle with and grapple with and and put into our context and go, okay, what does it mean to follow the Messiah in this place, in this time? Jesus doesn't... Jesus doesn't have a pat answer for this situation. He says, yeah, Peter, we don't owe this tax. You and I, we, we don't come under this regime, but we're going to pay it anyway because people are going to be hurt if we don't. Because I don't want to offend these people that would needlessly be hurt if we don't. He said we're going to talk about how to choose our battles wisely. I think this is such an important thing for us to understand in the time that we find ourselves because there are so many opportunities to take a stand today. And I want to give two examples of this that I've seen in the last couple months. The first one, early in March... We just started to hear, like, you know, from the federal government and then from the state government, hey, this coronavirus thing, it might be a big deal. We don't really know anything about it right now, but because we don't know, we want to take some precautions, and we don't want our hospitals to be overwhelmed with cases, so we're going to ask people to stop gathering in large groups for a while. That's going to be concerts and bars and restaurants and rotary clubs and churches, we, we don't know what's going to happen. And now, on the other side of that, we know a lot more about this whole situation, and it's a very complicated situation. But at that time, in early March, we didn't know anything other than somebody was saying, it might be a good idea to limit contact. And most of the churches around our country and in our city did that. We, we stopped gathering. We started putting online content. But there were some in our country and even locally, and you've seen them on the news, that just said, you know what? We have a right to gather. 
we're going to disobey this order and we're going to stand up against it because it's our right. And they did. And what happened? Did the non-believing world that is watching the church, and, and please know that the non-believing world is watching the church. You have friends and neighbors that are not Christians that are watching your life because they are looking around for hope and fulfillment. And if you are living the way you should be, you're telling them, hey, I have hope. I have fulfillment. I have joy and peace. And they're watching you to see if what you say is true. So the unbelieving world saw these churches, and you may, many of you may have seen the, the, the clip of the woman driving out of the service, I think it was in Florida, and she's interviewed, and she says, the blood of Jesus will keep me from getting the coronavirus, and what was the result? Men and women that are outside the kingdom of God looked at the church and said, oh, I guess you don't really care about the community. I guess you don't really care about the health of the people in your neighborhood. All you care about is exercising your rights. Now, I don't think anyone would have said that in the churches, but that's what it looked like. Those, those people looked in and, and said, wow, that's, that's unfortunate. I thought you said that you cared about people. And that's a real shame that that was the witness of the church because we stood up for our rights. One more example, there's, we're in the midst of this incredibly racially charged moment in our country, and this happens periodically, and it usually happens because of a tragedy that strikes. And it's, it's terrible, and it's unfortunate, and it's complicated. But one of the things over the last several years that have coalesced around this idea of equality for black and brown people is this, this movement called Black Lives Matter. And I, I see, I've, I've seen Christians online and I've, I've talked to Christians in person who say, you know, we don't support Black Lives Matter because some of their leaders are Marxist and some of their leaders are gay. We can't be seen around those kind of people. And I just think, really? That's the battle we're gonna fight right now when our black and brown brothers and sisters, men and women, Christians who have more in common with all of us than any white person who is not a part of the kingdom of God are struggling, are suffering, and it's a complicated issue with all kinds of variables, and we can discuss that in nuanced ways all day long. But the message that many people of color hear from the white church is like, well, we don't support that. And that's the stand that we take. And I just think, really, is that the is that the best battle to fight right now? That somebody in that group is a socialist? Somebody in that group is an LGBTQ activist? Can we, can we not differentiate between those two things and stand up for people who are crying out in need? I think Jesus' example here is incredibly important for the church today. He has every right to stand up against the tyranny of the temple and say, I will not pay that tax. It is unjust, undeserving, and I am the king of this kingdom. My father is Yahweh, and you have no authority over me. But he doesn't do that. He just says, Peter, 
Let's just pay it. I, I'm on a mission. I'm going to Jerusalem. I have a job to do. And this thing over here, it's just going to get in the way. Peter writes some really helpful things later on in his life. In 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Notice, we are strangers and exiles. We do not belong here. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, those people that are not part of the kingdom, those people that are watching your life. So when they slander you as evildoers, because they will, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit, this is the key here, submit as free people. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, and honor the emperor. This is super key. Peter says, you do not submit, you do not give up your rights, you do not lay down your privileges because you are subservient to others. You do those things because you are free from others. There is nothing in this world that you are subservient to, so you have the freedom to lay down your life for those in need. So what are we willing to give up in order to love other people? How are we willing to be poured out for the good of those who have yet to come to faith in Christ? Jesus is step-by-step making his way towards Jerusalem. He is going to the cross to be betrayed, to be crucified, and to rise from the dead. And his disciples are going with him. If they're going to be people that say, I follow Jesus, that's where Jesus is going. And that doesn't change today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany during the Nazi regime, wrote this. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Over and over and over again, Jesus shows us this example of laying aside his privilege, laying aside his power for the benefit of others. And church, I really feel like the world is growing darker in a lot of ways. And I would not be surprised if sometime in the future, it actually becomes dangerous to be a Christian here. There, are, there have been calls for years and they're growing stronger 
to say that the things that we believe, the things that Christians have believed for 2,000 years are bigoted, are intolerant, should be made criminal. And when the time comes that someone in authority says, I cannot worship the king, I cannot follow Christ, I cannot read this book, I cannot share the good news about Jesus with others, I'm going to jail. And I hope you would say the same thing. But I think the more we stand up for ourselves when it's really not that important, the less meaningful it will be when it really is important. Notice that, that Peter passage that I read. Peter's super concerned about what people outside the church think. They're watching. They want, they want to, even though they think you're crazy, even though they think your beliefs are bigoted, they, they will see that you do good and they will glorify God because of it. That's what I want us to be about. Doing good. And when people question us because of our beliefs, they, they still won't be able to say anything because, like, wow, you guys are still serving the poor and working towards racial reconciliation. And striving for the good of your city. And I don't, I don't know that I agree with you, but I can't speak ill of you. All throughout this gospel, Matthew's pointing us to the cross. And all throughout every day, Jesus is still bringing us back to the cross. We take communion every Sunday. And I've said this before, but communion is a a covenant renewal ceremony for the Christian. It is a pledge of allegiance Maybe when you were a kid, you stood up in school and you put your hand over your heart and you recited the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States of America because you are a citizen of America and and you were saying, this is who I am and this is what I believe and this is what I stand for. This is what the communion meal is because more than citizens of America, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And when we take this bread and this cup, Jesus says, remember the cross. Remember my death. Remember my body broken and my blood shed for you. Remember that one day I will come back and have this meal with you in the kingdom of God. Look forward to that. And by coming forward today and taking the cup and the bread and and, and eating and drinking it, you are renewing your covenant as a follower of Jesus. Yes, Jesus, you are Lord. Yes, Jesus, you are king. Yes, Jesus, I am following you wherever you go. And the centerpiece of that is the cross. Jesus could have instituted any number of things. You know, every week, get together and have fish to remember when I fed 5,000 people. Every week, get together and have Lots and lots of wine because I did that one thing at that wedding that one time. No. Get together and remember the death that I died for you. 
not because that one-time thing is over and gone. Because in one sense it is, right? Jesus died 2,000 years ago. He secured your salvation by trusting in him. This thing that he's already done and already accomplished, it is finished, he said. But the mark of us as followers of Jesus is still centered on the cross. And we remind ourselves through communion every week that we are people of the cross. We are people that are continually laying ourselves down for others, just like our Lord and Master. And when there is an opportunity to stand up for our own rights, but in the process hurt others, we we need to consider what does it look like to live for the benefit of the people outside. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.